Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. I'm, well, it's obvious. I'm John Verhoeven, and I was a cop back in the 80s in Sydney. And I'm Paul Verhoeven, John's son. I'm an author, and I wrote two books about Dad's time as a cop. The first five seasons of Loose Unit spanned my time in general duties, forensics, my time as a firefighter, and even my stint running a funeral home. This season, we're visiting the locations of Australia's most notorious, baffling, horrific crimes and looking at what happened there. From Snowtown to the family, from the Morehouse murders to haunted highways. This season of Loose Units is your go-to guide to the worst crimes in Australian true crime history. Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Hello and welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. And welcome to part two of our look at the case of the Kellets, two people who went missing in 2015 in mining country while they were away prospecting with a bit of a character called Mr. Milne. Now, last week, Dad, we were looking at what Ray and Jenny and Mr. Milne were doing for the you know first couple of days of their prospecting trip out in the middle of nowhere in an area filled with mine shafts. The whole thing was getting pretty sinister. And uh, this week, we're going to be looking at what happened next. Now, Mr. Milne posits that he left the camp to do some prospecting of his own for a bit and he uh he he then gets back to the camp and what happens then because he gets back to the campsite and at this point listeners we are going purely off testimony from the sole witness who could also be the sole suspect but this whole thing kicks off because he basically just sort of leaves it's the 22nd of march uh, 2015 he gets back it's early sunday and he assumes that ray and jenny are in their tent asleep or at least that's what he says now, this is First of all, what do you think of this part of his story? When Mr. Milne comes back at two in the morning, he doesn't want to disturb the sleeping people. And I think that's a tick to that. I agree with that. Okay. Who, who, who in their right mind would just go and wake people up to say? I mean, you could leave a note. He left a lot of really good equipment for them, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Very interesting. Well, do you want to, let's quickly go through what he left behind. So before he left... Um, he left him a whole bunch of stuff. He uh, let's see. He, he they already had, and this is an inventory. He said it was aware. He was aware that Ray and Jenny had about four jerry cans of fuel, ramps and recovery tools, two blue barrels of water, two batteries for lights, two angle fridges of food, and two tubs with dried food. And that he left them an ATX Garrett metal detector, which mm. he left on the campsite table, a yellow handheld Garmin GPS, a green plastic gold pan on a round table next to the tree and a medium-sized chain for chaining on the ground on the same round table. And it says chaining here is the practice of... Clip- Paul, Paul, I know. Yeah. Can I tell, can I tell the listeners what chaining is? 
Yeah, please do. Please do. Um, and I have to admit to everyone that I didn't know until I'd read this particular coroner's report. Yeah. You tie it around your waist. You connect it. And you drag this chain behind you. What it means is that you basically can't get lost. It's like the Hans Christian Andersen tale of Hansel mm-hmm. and Gretel, where they left, well, they, they stuffed up. They clearly didn't have one of those chains. They left crumbs that were picked up by birds. But imagine if you're in the desert, Paul. I've seen photos of the terrain. It's very sandy, very, very, there's a lot of dirt around, obviously. So you drag a chain which creates an indentation mm-hmm. and it means you just simply follow it back to, to base camp. You follow the line that you've dragged, that you've created. Isn't that fantastic? So, yeah, ha- it's, for, it's a Hansel and Gretel method, basically. That's it's, very it's smart. Very smart. Mm. So he left all this stuff for them, so he says. Now, the magistrate had a real problem with Milne's evidence at this point because Milne says... He'd been prospecting for in excess of 20 hours. So clearly he was very, very tired. But then he says that he drove back to Perth. Wait, off the back of 20 hours of nonstop prospecting? Is that that normal or...? No, but she, the, uh, the magistrate, the coroner says that she has a real problem. And of course... That's where I disagree. I have been in situations in my life mm-hmm. where I was prospecting for bottles. You know that I was an avid bottle collector. And it's at this point the listeners go, hang on a sec, what's that got to do with gold? Well, let me tell you folks that some of the convict ginger beer bottles that I found have values in excess of $100,000. And when you went after them, you were basically out, uh, basically foraging in yep. areas where you weren't entirely meant to be. I mean, no. there is a slight difference geographically. Ah, um, but, but Paul, we did a lot of country work too. Oh, okay. We, where we would do research, archaeological research, we would discover where early mining towns existed. Gotcha. And I'll tell you now, adrenaline... Is a, is a, a mighty powerful drug. Mm-hmm. And similar to prospecting, if you become almost, it's sort of a crazy obsession, but I totally, totally understand it. And I so feel that, that if, gold. If he was on a bit of a run, if he was having a bit of a, of a yeah, run. Yeah. Yeah. If he was on a high, mm. if, he, if he discovered something quite extraordinary, then I don't have a problem at all with being able to be sleep deprived mm. and the roads out there it's not you're not driving in in a in a you know built up area you're not driving in a city the chances are that you're not going to come across many people but then it gets interesting because he he lied to the police when he was interviewed mm-hmm. because he gives them certain facts as to the way he drove back yeah so he says he took a sealed road i think through mount magnet which is a nearby mm. area and then mm. later on he says actually i didn't take the seal uh, actually 
I kind of went up the road and then back a bit and then down. And I think there was some CCTV footage that, he, that they were hoping to use to corroborate mm. from a gas station, but the camera didn't show. Uh, I know, Paul, that's really interesting because, listeners, this is, this is an interesting part of this story. It's a tiny part, but is it? Sometimes the, the detail can be buried. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I find what I'm about to say slightly problematic. What he says is that at this particular service station, which is well known in that area, obviously well known because there wouldn't be that many service stations there, but there's a camera in the station and it picks up a lot of the traffic. And on the balance of probabilities, Mr. Milne would have known about the camera. But what he did, he comes to a stop sign, and this is in the middle of nowhere, in the wee hours of the morning. I mean, even at midday to be very quiet. But what he does, he decides that he doesn't want to stop at the stop sign, which to me is bizarre. Mm. And he then says that he, prior to getting to the stop sign, which was in view of the camera, he then basically went around the back of the service station. Okay? He says that it's a common practice out there where people don't want to stop at the stop sign, so they go around this kind of track. Paul, does that sound rational to you? Not really, but I mean, okay, on the one hand, if he was fanging it away from a crime scene, that would explain why. Uh, On the other hand, uh, possibly sleep deprivation meant he'd make weird decisions if he's been going on a, you know, multiple day jag without sleep. I okay. don't know. It's- but you've, he still had the presence to consider not stopping at a stop sign. But even if you, I mean, everyone stops at stop signs or they roll through, or even if mm. there was no one around on the balance of probabilities, there wouldn't be a car within Kui. Then one has to ask oneself, was he actually trying to avoid the camera at the okay. service station? But then, then this is when it gets, well, quite interesting. He then says to the police that the reason he lied to them was that he actually decided to go back to the camp. So he starts heading back to the camp. Then he says he had second thoughts about his second thought and thought, I'm not going to go back to the camp now. He felt a bit weird, a bit you know, he, he sort of was probably, probably, if this is true, with what he said, was having a bit of an internal argument, toing and froing. I don't necessarily find that problematic. As a, as a human being, we have all had situations where we may have even turned around, started. I mean, surely you and Tegan sometimes have been heading somewhere and thought, oh, do we really want to go there? You turn around and then you go, oh, hang on a sec. You know what? We will go back. And from a police mm. perspective, looking at the, the GP sat nav, you know, f- tracking your vehicle. And of course, every time that Mr. Milne goes past a telecommunications tower, mm-hmm. it pings. So they, they can basically track his movements. Are these the movements of a man who's committed a crime? Or are they movements of a man that has changed his mind, which we all do. And these are the I things another, that... I had another weird thought. It's yep. possible. My first thought was, oh, he found gold out there, didn't want to tell them, so he maybe went back for more equipment. So he's going, oh, do I go back and grab it now? Do I? It feels like it 
possibly there was a time-sensitive thing here that maybe wasn't murder. Maybe it was... Is that out of the no, realm of possibility? No, definitely not. You've really touched on something that I was hoping you wouldn't touch on. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, because it's it's one of my theories. Well, we can that, get to that later. If oh, you like. well, well, well later. Okay, but great. It's a, it's a theory that... It's brilliant you've, you've... Because let's face it, Paul, it really is all about the gold. Yeah. This story. Mm-hmm. This is why they're there. He makes his way back to Perth. As far as he's concerned, he has left... I mean, we need to consider two parallel thought processes here. One thought mm-hmm. process is that he's guilty. Yep. He goes back... And he just has to deal with it and maybe or maybe not things will come to fruition. He's left the scene of a crime. That's Mm -hmm. one theory. The other theory, of course, is that he's left them sleeping. They're still alive. As far as he's concerned, he's done the right thing, left them extra equipment, and he's just driven back to Perth, not expecting to hear from them for some time. 22nd of March, right? So he's back on 22nd of March. There's CCTV that catches him at like a roadhouse, Ginger's Roadhouse. Um, GPS corroborates that. So they know that he's heading back to Perth at that point. But it's not until the 31st of March that someone goes, hang on, where are Ray and Jenny, right? Hmm. And as discussed in the first episode, mm-hmm. there was at least 10 days where the family did not expect to hear from the parents. So 10 days is a long time. Well, because a lot can happen. And and, and th- this is where it gets interesting for me is that the campsite, which is sitting there unattended, and the dog, Ella, who is left at the campsite, also unattended. We talk about there not being many people around, but already in the last episode, um, Mr. Milne testified that he and Ray saw uh, some guys off in the distance and they fired their gun. Remember that? Remember those people? I that do, they but that, that bit of information is is very controversial. But there's the, that. Yeah, go, sorry, go well, on. Well, I, I was just going to say that Ray was very particular, as are most mm-hmm. people with firearms, and his family have said there is no way on earth he would have fired random shots. He said that's just... He would not do that. So that seems out of character. Seems out of character. So that brings into question, Mr. Milne. But let's go. What I was trying to say is that there are different visitations of the camp during the mm. period between when there Milne are. leaves. Mm. And so we've got uh, several duos. What's interesting here is that a lot of them seem to be retirees who enjoy prospecting. Mm. So this seems to be like a bit of a, it's like a sort of edgy bird watching. This yeah. area is being visited quite frequently. So. Mr. Ella and Mr. Roberts, uh, I think two retirees, were prospecting in the area and they drive past on the 22nd of March and they're looking for somewhere to you know, prospect. They see mm. the campsite. I think their assumption is, they don't get too close, but their assumption is that... Uh, now, is this the one where... They believe that it's an active campsite and the people, yep. by the way, it, 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 it's in order. <clears throat> yep. You know, there are... There are, there are... <laughs> If, if you didn't go and have a very, very close look at it, you would not have discovered some things that kind of would then start to indicate the things. Active, yes. Active, yes. But um, Mr. Ella of the duo, he 
he said in court that the dog was barking and the, the dog was barking for such a long time that if the people at the campsite had actually been there, they would have mm. come out to see what the dog was barking about. So I think the assumption was, look, so, it is uh, an active campsite, but they're true. off doing They're off whatever. prospecting. Yeah, of course. And they've left the dog there. Mm-hmm. Of course, with hindsight, we can now hypothesise that the camp was, was empty and the dog mm-hmm. was probably almost excited to see humans. Yeah, I mean, I've seen photos of this dog. This is a, this might not be relevant, but this is an adorable dog. Big dog, though. So so they, they head off. They don't get very close to the campsite. They leave. The next people to find the campsite is a full five days later. And obviously, in terms of crime scene development, a lot can happen not just to a body, but to evidence because it's out in the elements, right? So five mm. days later, 27th of March, and there's another duo, um, Mr. Robert Blair and Mr. Trevor Richards, again, both retirees, and they came out with their partners to do some prospecting, which again, as per my bird watching metaphor, I think is pretty apt. Mm. So they spot the campsite. They don't know what's going on. I think, so again, they notice the dog, right? And they notice that Ella isn't tied up. Mm. Um and I, I, there's all kinds of differing opinions here as to how disheveled the place was, um, what kind of state the camp is in. The problem is, of course, we're going off memory, right? Mm. Um, how many things do you see in passing? And then whether a duna's flung outside a tent or not, whether there's you know stuff tipped over, it's so hard to tell what is and isn't relevant. I mean, this is... Also, yeah. Paul, I think being prospectors, mm-hmm. prospectors, I think it's fair to say... They're very secretive. Mm. I, unless you can see someone, like if you and I are in a, a motor vehicle, a four-wheel drive, we're heading out in that terrain, you and I are going to do some prospecting, we come across a camp, there is no way on earth that we're going to get out of our four-wheel drive and walk over in a camp. We're not going to do that. I'm no, certainly not going to do it because I'm thinking, you know, these people, they... They're here for a reason. Everybody believes that they're going to find the mother load. And like I said, it's so secretive. It's secretive in the the fact that they'd said to their children, their families, that they're going to be out of contact for 10 days. Mm-hmm. They, they were very nonspecific. I mean, it's, it's, it's problematic. You know, I, I have a, a, a strong feeling that... They're going to really, in light of this particular story, I think what should be done is that people should report to the nearest police station and at least inform the police, even if it's vague, but at least give them an idea where they're going to be and when they're planning on coming back. I think that's prudent out there. You know, this is a a very, very historic mining area with... As we mentioned last week, more than 150 shafts, okay, mm-hmm. of varying depths. It's really dangerous territory. Um, so, you know, the second lot, as you say, have come through. They were questioned at length during the, the coronial inquiry. Actually, they get questioned. This is what I want to talk to you about. So the day after they arrive... Right. Sorry, a few mm. days later, they get two Shire of Sandstone council workers 
who come up to them and go, hey, there's some missing prospectors. Have you seen anybody in the area? Hmm. And then uh, this duo, Mr. Blair and Mr. Richards, go, actually, there is a campsite. And then on the afternoon of the 31st of March, a couple of days later again, they're looking around and they find Ray's quad bike. Hmm. So they go up and uh, they can tell that it's been rained on. They think it might have broken down. Um, The keys aren't in the ignition. So they're not exactly sure what's going on. So then they keep walking. They head down to the campsite. They're calling out to see if anybody's there. Um, Ella isn't there at this point. The windows of the Land Rover are down slightly. Something that I don't want to talk about it just yet, but I've actually got an uh, itemized list of the state in which the campsite was eventually found once the cops got there and sort of started doing their investigations. But I find it interesting that these two actually, you know, have heard that the couple's missing. So they go, all right, let's go and have a look because mm. this might be the campsite. Um, they look around. Um, they open the gl- they go so far as to open the glove box in Ray's uh, truck. Mm. And uh, there's a wallet in there. There's some cards. Um, it says here, Mr. Blair tore off a piece of paper from a map to note the contact details. Uh, and then they notice something which keeps coming up in the inquest, and that is that uh, there was a wasp nest inside the car. Mm. Uh, it's attached to the inside door handle on the rear right-hand door, about 30 centimetres wide and pretty new. Mm. And apparently they take a couple of days to build. So at this point, it's very clear that nobody's come back because if you're mm. staying at a camp, you're not going to be away for long enough for that no. to happen. At this, it, Okay, so things are looking pretty, pretty sus at this point. Yeah. Hmm. Although one could theorise um, that they took enough equipment with them to mm-hmm. set up a secondary campsite yep. at a location because they... Imagine you're a prospector. These two are amateur prospectors. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we should say three people because we're not quite sure at what point... You know, something untoward happened. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. But originally, it was three. Let's say we're down. Let's say Milne's left, and the two people are sort of bivouacked away from the main camp, and they they hit the mother load. I think they would get a fair dose of gold fever and become crazy and not be able to leave it. And then, you know, it's, it's look, there are so many things that could have happened out there. But, but these I'll, two seemed pretty clued in, actually. Yeah. Because they seemed aware of what could happen out there. So Mr. Blair and Mr. Roberts, they do like a 10-minute recce of the campsite. They head back to their camp. And on the way, they do something which I think is kind of impressive. They get out some flashlights and they peek into uh, a bunch of mine shafts. This is mm. here about half a dozen just to check to see if anybody's kind of fallen in. Mm. And then um, about the 29th of March, there's a wind coming from the west and they smell what they think is a dead kangaroo in one of the nearby mine shafts. Yeah. And, uh, and, then, this, and then the smell goes away. It's been raining a bit. The smell goes away and they assume it's just a dead kangaroo because obviously if it's dark and a kangaroo's hopping around, it falls into a you know, a man-made hole, that is that is plausible, right? Hmm. Yeah. yeah, and they report this They report this smell to the council workers and to the cops um, around the end of March, the start of April, uh, and they, you know, explain what they've seen, they explain the smell, and I feel like they've kind of done their due diligence at this point, right? Hmm, I agree. And then the police actually come out to the to the campsite, Yes. And unfortunately, Paul, and I'd love to get, you know, be sitting with some other police, you know, and chatting with them mm-hmm. as to, I mean, initially they just thought, I shouldn't say just, but they thought it was a missing persons case. Yeah. And, but some of the police did, because it's reported in the coronial, um, you know, in all the paperwork that yeah. occasionally they did get that same smell of, you know, what they thought was a dead animal. Paul, I think that if you smell something that's off and there are people missing, mm-hmm. I can't believe that you would uh, simply yeah. put it down to it's a dead animal. I just can't fathom that. I wasn't mm-hmm. there and I don't like to you know, go too deeply. I mean, I do like, we do like to go deeply too. But <laughs> Yeah, it's, it is know. tricky because, you know, it seems now so obvious um, what had happened. But there's so few police in the area. I mean, um, they had to get Mount Magnet police in because there's no local police station in the area. Mm. Um, they're dealing with huge, huge distances and... Uh, the family at this point, by the way, on 31st of March is when the family went, hey, um, these people are missing. So mm. obviously uh, they head out towards the area, they head to the campsite, they see it's empty. Um, 
they've got people who've checked. They, I mean, there's a quad bike with no keys. There's a truck with a wasp nest in it. There's a uh, Ella's been spotted wandering around. Oh, they thought Ella and was Paul, like a, yeah, and yeah, there yeah. are also three, uh huh, three firearms. Yes, in the back of one of the vehicles because the husband and wife travelled in separate vehicles. If you include Mr. Milne, yeah, there were three vehicles involved, and they were really, really serious vehicles. You know, they they were they were made for purpose, and you know, when you take three firearms, three rifles, out into the bush, you know, they're not toys. They're they're weapons. They're very dangerous. When the police rock into the camp and see these three unattended firearms that they, and rightfully so, tagged and bagged, I I would like to have been a, a fly on the wall because one would like to think that they were treating this as a potential crime scene. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking maybe that wasn't the case because there were lots and lots of things that happened over the preceding weeks where, you know, things just didn't sort of happen properly because it was perhaps misinterpreted at that early stage as a missing persons case. Well, let's go with the... I just want to quickly read you what the what kind of state the campsite was in, and I'd like you as an ex-cop to tell me and the listeners what you infer from this, okay? Mm, yeah. So they, they get to the campsite, and this is Ray and Jenny's campsite, and here is the observations that support an unplanned... Uh, here we go. Uh, the campsite was not packed up at all, and there was a lot of gear lying around. There were keys in the vehicle ignitions and vehicle windows left down. There was an unwashed frying pan full of water on a table. There were coffee cups on a table, one still having the color of coffee in it. The portable fridge was warm, and the contents of the fridge and the esky were degraded. There was untouched food left out, including meat out. There were clothes on the clothesline, and there was a camelback hanging in a tree. So, based on that, what, what would you infer if, once you arrived at the crime scene? I mean, weird smell notwithstanding. Hmm. There was no weird smell in the close proximity of that particular camp. Oh, no, I know, but I, I mean, you know there's a weird smell in the kind of in the proceedings. Okay. So I'm saying if you just saw those things at this campsite and you knew the dog was wandering around, what would your assumption be about the people who were there? Okay, well, it had rained mm-hmm. and the fact that there's fluid in one of the cups and that what you've just read is probably not sort of hyper-detailed. One would imagine that there would have been other... Uh, you know, utensils that would have had water to to get that type of water referring to the meteorological records of the time over that period there'd been 96 millimetres of rain so you know, to fill a, a, a coffee cup with rainwater that would indicate a fair bit of rain, but also over a, a fairly long period of time. The fact that the keys are in the car in the ignition indicates a sense of we are coming back within hours. Um, the vehicles are safe because there's no one else around. It's very unlikely. You'd probably hear motor vehicles mm-hmm. in the distance. 
the fact that the food is out means that they were planning on coming back and eating. It was it was a camp that was set up. They've got you know washing hanging on the lines. They've got a water bag in the tree. It indicates that they've left the camp a little bit like the Mary Celeste, the famous famous mystery with the ship. They they board the ship and everything's set up for dinner yep. and everyone's gone. If it's frozen meat, it's possible they put the meat out to kind of thaw, thaw. assuming they'd be thaw. back in time. Okay. Yep. yep. And it just it just indicates first indications, first feelings are that it is very, very normal. There's no sign of 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 a fight taking place, struggle. There's no there's nothing broken. You know if you are going prospecting Mm-hmm. and you leave the windows of your car down, you're definitely planning on coming back. Mm-hmm. The When the police arrive and find the wasp nest, I mean, a wasp nest doesn't occur overnight. It happens over days. And inside the four-wheel drive it was also wet. So we're talking days that this particular camp um has has been unattended yeah and that's when you begin to call in the troops and bearing the first in mind on the ground is sorry going go oh, on I was just going to say bearing in mind at this stage i they were not thinking murder no they're thinking you know prospectors have gone out and they've got lost Something's happened. They may have fallen down a shaft and we need to find them. And over the next few days, they bring in mounted police. They bring in dogs. They bring in helicopters. First, there's a a regular constable basically heading on with a a colleague, basically flashing a mag light down uh, the various shafts. Which um, is very, very dangerous to do. Yeah, because the sides could collapse, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And at one point, they shine a torch into one of the shafts. Um, They walk around, and uh, First Class Constable Tucker, who is the guy doing the actual shining of said torch, Hmm. he spots an actual dead kangaroo. And so he goes, look, this is something that happens in the area. And so he passes the information on to his supervisor named Sergeant Michael Hall. Hmm. Um, And Mr... But somebody who's there with them at the time effectively says and testifies in court that he thought the kangaroo was dried up past the point where it would actually be making that kind of smell. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so, so they keep. Yeah. So what happens now? Well, they just bring in more and more people. They end mm. up having. They use fixed plane with observers. They use helicopters. They bring in an expert from Queensland, a police officer who specialises. And something I didn't know that I found fascinating is that they have these formulas and they're well-proven international formulas they use to figure out how far a person could sort of make their way from a said point being the camp. And they have all these different calculations depending on what type of person you are in terms of are you an explorer are you a backpacker 
Are you a family that's pulled up on the side of the road? How far are you likely, based on years and years of scientific you know, research? And something very interesting that's come out of this, Paul, is that they've decided to include in this international sort of framework that they use when they try and track down missing people is that they've decided to include a new category, and that is the category of prospector. Isn't that interesting? Because they figure that prospectors are going to be more au fait, more prepared than someone, for example, that just the car breaks down and, you know. So what they need to do, in essence, is they need to figure out the circle of how far to go out in terms of, you know, distance from the center point. And they calculated based on the information and previous anecdotal experience that it was approximately six kilometers. That was the the radius. They felt that they didn't think that someone could make it further than that. Taking into consideration the temperature, the terrain, and how long water lasts. So there are many, many factors. And if you're prospecting, you're going out to fossick or possibly abseil down into a shaft, you have clear plans to be back at the camp at least within, well, 12 to 24 hours. And so that gives them a very good starting point. The fixed plane, which had a police observer on board, a trained observer, which I was in the police force when I was with the air wing, and they were flying at around about 500 feet. 500 feet for flying in a plane is low. And just to be clear, that's not so that they can see into a mine shaft. They're no, just no. sort of doing a reconnaissance they're, of the area. Right? Yeah, they're looking. They're, 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 they're studying the terrain. They also flew at night time. Can you imagine why you'd fly at night time? Um, no. They used heat-sensitive cameras. Uh, okay. Right, so it's cold, so any body heat would show Correct. up better at night. Right? And, okay. and, so- and they were drawing a blank on every single thing. They had TRG, they had SES, and at one point, somebody was actually tossing kind of bioluminescent sticks. You know the kinds you crack yes. at like a nightclub and shake yep. around? So somebody tosses one down the mine shaft, uh, looks in, doesn't see anything, hands wiped. That's that's the end of that. Hmm. I really want to skip ahead at this point. Not skip ahead, but just go, all right. So they searched, and the, um, the coronial inquest talks about ways in which they could have done stuff better sooner and i applaud the honesty of that uh, of that aspect of it dad let's go to the media exercise that uh sort of brings a lot of this part of the investigation to a head can you talk us through what what happens here so basically the media have come up and <clears throat> there was a senior firefighter and he was an expert in basically getting to the bottom of these shafts so they chose a particular shaft for a demonstration. This is so, not related to the search of the Nothing to do with the search. All. This is to they show... They just happen to be in the area and yeah. they're like, this is a good way to show the media is... that we've got special methods for Correct. finding things. And it was a okay. very good PR exercise for the police mm-hmm. and also the fire brigade. This senior firefighter, very, very skilled, very talented, was about to embark on something very dangerous and it was a demonstration yep. to show the media uh, 
the procedures of going into a mine shaft. So they set this tripod up above the entrance to the shaft. This particular shaft was probably the height of maybe a four-story building, which is that's high. Mm-hmm. And the filming away, they begin to lower the senior firefighter into this particular shaft. I reiterate, this shaft had been already ticked off as being empty. Okay, it had been searched. And 12 metres down the shaft, what do you think the firefighter can see with his torch at the bottom? The body. He sees the body the body <clears throat> of a person lying. He couldn't see the whole body because there was a slight curve. There's a term they use in mining and basically you've got a shaft that drops down but then when the miners get to the base they then begin to to obviously with 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 picks and shovels they begin to you know dig a, like a cave they dig out like imagine you get a mushroom and you turn it upside down what a fucking good uh, analogy it's like a bulb basically so bulb. you get to the bottom and then it goes out so there's basically almost a recess away yes. from where people could actually see and so that's where the body is. Correct. And right? can you imagine the media from a media's perspective? What a golden, weird moment in time. You're filming an exercise at, and all of a sudden this senior firefighter realises and there would have been mixed emotions amongst the professional mm. services there because yeah. if I was the boss, I would have my heart would have stopped and I would have thought, this is a major fuck up. It's good and bad. It makes us look like fucking idiots because we missed it. And it's good news in that perhaps it could be related to the couple. So, um, senior yeah. fire, so the, the firefighter, these were his observations based on how he found the body because the body was at the bottom of the shaft. And um, here's what he said. Ray's body, including the lying face upwards and position of the arms, is not a usual position for a person who has fallen from a height and thereby rendered immobile. And having regard to training drills he has done that include dragging mannequins by the ankles in hypothetical danger scenarios, one explanation for the positioning of Ray's legs being splayed out at the shoulder width was that his body had been dragged by the ankles. Hmm. What well, do you think of that? I think it's fascinating uh-huh. what he said. So hang on, what he's saying is that it looked to him like mm. somebody had, if let's say the body was at the bottom of the shaft, and let's say theoretically somebody had done that, then in order to make sure that the body wasn't found, they could have gone down and then dragged the body back underneath the recess because that's easier than... It's an interesting that, theory, and yeah. I guess we'll have to wait till next week because there's so much to unpack. So much. In there this is extraordinary so much. story. It's, I, I'm telling you now, here and now, mm. on the record that I find this case stimulating, fascinating. I have found myself thinking about it at two in the morning on more than one occasion. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's a live case. Excuse the dreadful terminology, but it's still happening. It is still happening. The search is still ongoing. There, the search has been renewed. It's this is in the news right now, folks. This is mm. a very 
Oh god, it's so intense. But what happens next is is equally incredible. We're going to keep going next week with part three of our look at the Kellets. And uh, we're going to keep looking at the state of Ray's body in which it was found, some of the evidence, and then try and figure out what happened to the third party in this terrible tragedy. In the meantime, everybody, we're going to be back at the tail end of this week with another episode of Loose Ends. Thank you so much for listening to yet another episode of Loose Units, The Shadow Files. We will see you soon for more Loose Units. Bye, everyone. Cheerio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.